Welcome to another episode of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Returning from another long hiatus, I'm Gareth Hanna, and with me are the more familiar tones of Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, how's it going? And Adam McHenry. Hello, Adam. Good to see you back, Gareth. Don't say that's too I had a specific request this week in our listener questions from uh, Donut of the Weekly Donut, who asked when I was coming back. So here I am, back by popular demand. If you can count one person as a popular demand, which I will indeed be counting. So we're, we're sort of packing two weeks worth of podcast into one at this stage of the season, because quite frankly, not enough people care about the Rainbow Cup to justify two podcasts in between matches. So here we are. You may make the most of this because we'll not be back again until after the Scarlet's game. So... Uh, this week, we will be looking back, of course, to the now defeat to Leinster and then ahead to that game against Scarlets and lots of your listener questions as well. So first of all, it finished up Leinster 21, Ulster 17. And there is an obvious place to begin our discussion on this game because it was the the one real point of note, Robbie Henshaw's tackle on Robert Balakoon. Jonathan, start us off with your... Uh, esteemed thoughts on that matter I just I suppose I agree with what uh, Ian Henderson said on the pitch like that is dangerous like there's no way to cut it apart from that like I hate the you know I hate the phrase not that sort of player because it's irrelevant but like I very much doubt that there was any malicious intent from Robbie Henshaw at all but it's still dangerous and it's still reckless and those are the buzzwords that mean that it can be sanctioned Regardless of whether it's six inches too low to be a red card and a hefty ban, because as Ian Henderson pointed out to Mike Adamson at the time, that's the kind of tackle that they're trying to stamp out. That's, by its definition, dangerous. So how do we get to the stage then that Ulster and Ian Anderson put it forward for a captain's challenge and there is uh, the referee turns around and says, nope, all fine? Well, it shouldn't have been a captain's challenge anyway. And this is where... This is sort of another feeling of this captain's challenge. So Ulster used their captain's challenge on this, lost their captain's challenge and then didn't have it for the remainder of the game. But that should have been checked by the TMO anyway. And I assume it would have been checked by the TMO, but there's no recourse for the referee saying, no, it's okay, we're going to look at that anyway. Because how could you not be looking at that? That's what I don't understand. Yeah. Well, they did, they did think it was legal. Like, I, I, I agree. I think it's a dangerous tackle, but... If the officials think it's legal at the time, then why would they go and check it? Because if you're talking about six inches, so it's six inches away from being a red card, like there's no way that the naked eye could see whether that made contact with the head or not. Or, we're we're, or, we're or, in an era now where TMOs check everything if there's even a hint. So I'm surprised that they didn't check it, to be honest. But at the same time, if they thought it was legal at the time, then... I don't see why they should check it, but um, that's like you say, they check everything. Yeah. So how could they not check that? And then it now has a detrimental effect to Ulster because they had to use their captain's challenge on that or felt that they had to use their captain's challenge and then didn't have it for the rest of the game. Now I know this came earlier, but things like and again, <laughs> it's a problem with the captain's challenge that you're told that you can't challenge non-decisions, as it were. And so you can't check whether Nathan Doak's been tripped as he puts the ball over the top, or you can't check, and again, this was earlier in the game, but you can't check the knock-on 
in the tackle that looked like it was just completely missed and ended up with, instead of Ulster having a scrum in Lancer territory, it had a line-out way back in their own territory at a time when the line-out was struggling. So those are the types of things that you can see as a it being beneficial. But the way that it's been used at the minute, just with the exception of that Connacht game, <laughs> Um, where it obviously massively benefited all, uh, Connacht. Like, you can't really see what it's what it started. Yeah, Captain's Challenge is just one that I think is causing confusion all over the place. Like, even at the end of the game where Leinster are trying to challenge a decision, but Mike Adamson is telling them they can't because the doctor brought the information on instead of them making the decision on the pitch. Well, where where's the line between that? Like, players are getting information all the time. Like, mm-hmm. how do you know a doctor hasn't shouted something from the touchline and that's how you made a decision earlier in the game? Like, Captain's Challenge is, for me, something that I'm not quite on board with yet and not just because Ulster haven't been getting the rub of the green with the decisions, but just I, I don't quite see the... The flow, like if, if you look at the games in general, like I think it was uh, one of the Dragons games recently, took two hours and 15 minutes to play that game and the ball was only in play for 38 minutes. This is what the captain's challenge has done and all these TMO referrals has done and that there's the frustration that's coming from it. To get back to the Robert Balakoon incident, yes, I agree it was dangerous. And this, this is where I think the laws of the game have to change to reflect it because under the laws of the game... Does Robbie Henshaw make contact with Robert Balakoon's head? No, but it's still a dangerous tackle. Like, as Johnny says, that's only six inches away from being a red card incident. And if Robert Balakoon being a little lower or if Robbie's shoulder rebounds off Balakoon and goes up, it hits him in the head. So, yeah, I completely agree with Johnny. I completely agree with Ian Henderson. There's no way that's nothing, in the words of Henderson. Like, if a guy is being hit that high and you're saying that that's not dangerous, then there's something wrong with the laws of the game. Because the bottom line is Henshaw does not need to hit him that high. He's lined him up from a long way out. He's run a long way. Balakun hasn't changed his line. Henshaw's hit him almost as soon as he got in the ball. So there is no reason for Robbie Henshaw to be hitting him that high. He can line him up a lot lower from a lot further out. But by the, so by the letter of the law then, did the officials get the call right or do you think even within the laws there there was scope to do something there within, within the letter of the law i think they got the decision right but that that that's where there's such a as for me it's not it, it is a dangerous tackle but by the letter of the law he hits him in the chest yeah i, I think the decision was right but it shouldn't have been if you get what i'm saying yeah to, do, you, do you agree with that, Johnny? Do you think it's, is it the rules here that are in question or that are the issue with this rather than the how, what the official the official's decision? Well, I still think it's a, it's, it's still a yellow card because it's dangerous. The framework or the updated framework talks about the degree of danger. And if there's no head or neck contact, then a tackle with a high degree of danger can result in a yellow card. So... I think the point that was being made was there is a high degree of danger to that yeah. tackle. And, you know, it's not it's not to, uh, I suppose, point out something that went against Ulster and, and frame it in something else that went against Ulster, but you think about Will Addison the week before and the monster player threw the tackle from Rob Little, lowering just before the contact. Like, basically, if Rob Balkan had have tilted his head down... <laughs> 
then you're talking about the possibility that, to be honest, Henshaw might miss the Lions tour because of that. So I said it's through nothing but good fortune that there wasn't contact made with the head, but the idea that there was a high degree of danger to it still means that whether there was contact with the neck or head or not, it's you can still give a yellow card. Like so why so why didn't they? Because like from all the reaction, everybody seems to be of the opinion that there was danger there. So why to play if you can play devil's advocate, why did the officials come to the decision they did? Because of that lack of contact. So the idea of what is and isn't dangerous is subjective. So that can't happen. Yeah. You know, the the high contact with the neck or head is isn't subjective. Like it either happens or it doesn't. In this case, it didn't. So what you're asking is, did the people making the decision judge that tackle or deem that tackle to be dangerous? And they didn't. And every- I'd be far more inclined to, <laughs> I'd be far more inclined to listen to somebody like Darren Cave, who, uh, you know, when you think back to, I think it was against Glasgow a few years ago, um, had the incident incidents of being involved in those types of tackles playing in midfield and can look at that and say that is dangerous i know from first-hand experience that that's dangerous rather than saying oh it was into the upper shoulder rather than the lower neck so it's nothing you know yeah it certainly generated plenty of debate the uh, darren cave was at the center but i think he said if he was uh Robert Balakun's parents watching that he would be be shaken in his words. But just to bring it out to that the wider captain's challenge, then again, Adam, do you think you're both sort of fairly uh, unconvinced by it so far? But even if it needs tweaked a bit, do you think there is scope for it there to to work? Because I mean, like it does seem a good idea in principle. You have it in tennis where it works well. The, the challenges and. The fact that teams can ask an official to go there does seem like a good idea in principle. Do you think it is in any way workable or are you sort of ready to give up on it? In principle, I like the idea of captains being able to say we'd like something to be looked at. But as I said, it slows down the game tremendously. And then in some cases you get captains coming up and saying we want to challenge something, but they're not 100% sure what it is. They just know that something has happened and they, they're they quite vague with what they want to do. I think you have to really, really define what you can challenge. Like I, I don't think you can have this vague, you can challenge general things. I think if you want to keep it captain's challenge, you have to say you can only challenge this, this, or this. But for me, I, I just don't see it being kept on going forward it's it's a good idea in principle but just how much it slows down the game and the fact that you can have all these stoppages for for tmo referrals that most of them actually aren't working out um i I just can't see it going forward the tmo is looking at everything anyway or theoretically should be looking at anything that they deem to be dangerous anyway so i would personally Bennett I don't see the the benefit of it Johnny what do you think are you ready to Bennett I just think you have to find a more workable way of implementing it I think it is it hasn't worked out on this occasion but anything that promotes a safer version of rugby has to be embraced and then it's not to be sniffed at either that like Connacht won a game that they would have lost via this so it has had its impact in a positive way there and you know you i guess when you're thinking about like just egregious things you go back to like the 2015 world cup and scotland 
things like that. You know, the ability to take instances like that out of the game is a positive. But this idea that it seems to be sort of on the hoof what you can and can't challenge and when you can and can't challenge and as Adam said, whether somebody from the sideline can say, you know, you mentioned tennis and you think about the NFL of where where it does work, but it's the implementation of it. It's the same as VAR and football. It's not that the principle is bad, it's the implementation of it. Yeah. You know, in other sports, you also have three challenges. In tennis, you have three challenges. In the NFL, you have three timeouts that you can risk your uh, challenges over. In rugby, you have one. So let's say you go for a challenge in the fifth minute of a game because you think someone has committed a red card offence and you get it wrong. You've lost it for the remaining 75 in which there could be five instances where you want to challenge something, but you can't and you would have gotten them all right. So there's also a a big risk factor of you, you have to get your captain's challenge right as well. And therefore it starts to become a very tactical thing too. So I, I think there would be more of a, if they brought it forward, there would have to be more of a leeway to not lose it as well if you were going to bring it in. Otherwise, you could still have things that fall by the wayside. But for, for me, I think players talk to the referees enough anyway to make them aware of instances. I think I, I, I get Johnny's point about wanting to take out stuff like the Scotland-Australia incident, which would be great because that was something that should have been overturned. But uh, at the same time, for me, players, captains are in a position where they should be able to talk to referees and say, look, come on, look at the TMO, or the TMO should now be in a position where with their expanded role, they should be able to say to a ref, well, hold on, let's look at this. I don't think a captain's challenge is necessarily adding enough. Mm. Okay. Well, just finally, quickly on that, what's the next step for these law trials? Well, they're like they're already changing what's happening in the southern hemisphere with which ones are being implemented in um, the trans Tasman competition as compared to that. I, personally, I don't think that we will see them come September. Like it's being used in this competition. You know, it's not being used in the Premiership. It's not being used in the top fourteen. Like it's being yeah. used in the Rainbow Cup because it's the Rainbow Cup. So you, you can work out these teething problems, but without. I think without serious change to how it's being implemented, I can't see them. I can't see them lasting. I don't mind the twenty-two dropouts. Now we haven't had a lot of them, but I would say that's a good sign because that means that you're not. You could say that it means that it's not needed, but you could also point to the idea that it's more likely. I think the teams are just making sure that when they do go for the line, because there is that consequence, they're not picking and going and picking and going and allowing themselves to be held up. If you're making a stretch for the line then you have to be relatively sure that you're going to score and I think that should speed up the game the red card thing is not good or certainly the the way that it's worked out has not been good just because of the uh, amount of stonewall red cards that you've had compared to I suppose when you were looking at the Six Nations and not wanting to quote-unquote ruin the spectacle of Six Nations games with red cards when you had so many red cards but I suppose, again, theoretically, it would, it would be better to just continue to hope that through sanction, players learn to tackle lower. It's not the, it's not happened so far, but, you know, eventually, again, you're going back to making it a safer game, which is 
the ultimate priority, really, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, just finally on sanctions, then on three week suspension for Will Allison. So that ends his season. Um, use Johnny's favorite phrase: not that kind of player, but not uh, not overly surprising if uh, continually frustrating for Will Allison's attempt to get any sort of run of games. Yeah, very frustrating. Uh, four week suspension. Um, of course, sorry. Three, yeah, three, three weeks at the end of this season, and then there's a bit of confusion as to what's happening uh, after that. From what I understand, if if he is due to play in Ireland's game against Japan, so if he's called up to the squad, then the suspension will apply for the Japan game. If he's not called up to the squad, then it will apply for the first game of next season. Mm-hmm. The issue is the ban will only apply to the Japan game if he's called up to the Ireland squad. And from what I understand, Ireland are understandably hesitant to call up a player who's not going to be available for one of two games. So it's a bit of a favor here. <laughs> well, for, for That's me, the like, obvious thing, isn't it? Like, yeah. Randy Farrell not just do Ulster Solid stays in the squad even if he's not in the squad. Like, he's yeah. going to check. You know? Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a win win for both sides. If you know Ireland call him up for the summer tour, he's available for the USA game. If they don't call him up, well, he's not available for two games. Like, and then Ireland or Ulster get to have him for the start of next season. If they don't call him up, Ulster don't have him for the start of next season. They don't have him for two games. For me, you should call him up anyway, and that gets rid of the problem for both teams. Uh, Ireland still have him for one game. Ulster have him for the start of next season. So, but that's that's where that situation lies. Um, so that'll be devil's advocate, of course, if he was to be called up, then he might not uh, play for Ulster at the start of the season because I know there's going to be a bigger gap between the summer tour and the start of the season. But players who go on, it's not a tour, obviously, it's it's at home. But players who play in the summer for Ireland don't tend to play the first game of the season anyway. So it could all be irrelevant, really. Hmm. Well, I was just going to make the point on Will Addison. You know, it's <laughs> you've been out for so long, you play. Uh, 30 minutes in one game and you're sent off in your second game it's been uh it's been a heck of a return for him but like this happened know, before as well do you remember like it wasn't a red card but it was a retrospective ban for the tackle against claremont and he like had given a press conference that week about how keen he was to uh be back playing rugby again and then he <laughs> got a ban it's like it was almost exactly the same uh the same thing that happened in the last one <laughs> the key might just be for him not to do press conferences talking about how keen he is to play more <laughs> yeah so if we just think about Ulster's uh, more general performance then in that uh, that defeat to Leinster while we're on Ireland it was something James Hume was speaking about in the aftermath of the game Jonathan um, obviously Andy Farrell was was at the game did uh, James do his Ireland chances a few favours yeah I thought he had a really good game and um, Obviously, with Bundy, Aggie, and Henshaw being on the lines, there is going to be an opening there. Um, the flip side of that being that um, you've got Stuart McCloskey and Chris Farrell who have been knocking around the squad for a number of years without really getting um, too many caps. And then, I suppose, in terms of the 13 jersey more than anything else, it would have been expected, I think, that... At one stage, certainly that Gary Riggles was going to be away with the Lions, and now he isn't. So, you know, it's I can see them playing closer to a best available 15 against Japan, if you like, knowing that Japan can be dangerous um, after recent experience. 
and then maybe experimenting more against the USA, growing that panel against the USA. And yes, I think James Hume certainly didn't do uh, didn't do himself any harm. And it was a really it was a really good midfield battle between all four because all four had very very strong games. Like McCluskey, I think that was probably his best game for Ulster in a while. And um, not that he's been doing badly, I just thought like that was. Um, Back to sort of his standout performances from from last season, you know, and um, could be put alongside that. Hume played well. Henshaw for all the talk about the uh, and the tackle, got man of the match and scored the winning try. And Rimmers had a good game too. So that that part of it was a really entertaining aspect of the game, along with I suppose the the second row head to heads and the back row head to heads as well. We talk about Stuart McCloskey potentially being a, an auxiliary flanker. What about that pickup from the base of the ruck by James Hume and doing the snipe from halfway? I don't think I've ever seen that before from a from a centre. So maybe we should be talking about putting him at seven, McCloskey at six. Like just beyond that, like beyond this week, you know, he's had a very very good season to mm-hmm. the point where I'm sure we'll talk about this at a later date. But he might be Ulster's player of the season. If you think about it, because like, you know, Jordy Murphy and Nick Timoney have had great 2021s, having not been featuring particularly prominently before Christmas. If you had voted for Ulster's Player of the Year at Christmas time, it would have been Marcel Katsia, but he's not really been a factor mm. post Christmas. He's not even here anymore. Um, whereas if you're looking for, I suppose, consistent impact from whenever the season started to whenever it will mercifully end, you really are talking about, I suppose, Hume, John Cooney would come into that bracket. Michael Lowry, I think. Has Mike Lowry as well, yeah. Like, Alan O'Connor, again, had like a very consistent season. But I do think Hume might be and could possibly swing the balance of this... I'm sure that everyone's very concerned about who gets my vote for player of the year, but like could possibly swing the balance firmly towards Hume with two strong games to come. Well, given your is, is the record, that's isn't news it? for Hume because if you vote for him, it means he will not win the award. That is true. That is true. <laughs> the one time that I was actually even asked to present the award, the award I ended up presenting it to somebody he hadn't even featured in my top three. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Hope you didn't tell them that at the time. By the way, well done. <laughs> I don't think you deserved it. <laughs> yeah, that, that was what he had ringing in his ears as he started his uh, his acceptance speech. Maybe like, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> so give give your vote to Marcel Katsia. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Just to add on to that, I mean, it's the consistency for me. Like, I honestly cannot remember a game where he's sort of come in under that 7 out of 10 threshold if you do your ratings. Like the, the Gloucester game is probably the closest to it, but nobody really covered themselves in glory and in a defensive sense in that game. So, for, yeah, he's, he's just so reliable. And the thing is, whenever you're filling in for someone like Luke Marshall, who has been so good over the past few years, and you know the chemistry that him and McCluskey have in the centre, and even whenever he had Stuart Murr kind of nipping at his heels to get a few games sort of coming out of that autumn series going into Europe... Hume just really steadied himself at 13. He's so defensively solid. We've seen flashes of that attacking brilliance. I feel like he hasn't even hit his peak in terms of 
how good he is with ball in hand. I feel like there's still more that he can offer there, which is very exciting to think about. But yeah, I, I would agree. I think he's in the player of the season category. I think there's uh, there's definitely a case to be made for him there. I think he, like he does something understatedly classy, if you know what I mean. Almost mm-hmm. every game, like you can pick out the highlight reel, and you know you, you've got that try in the Pro 14 final, which I suppose brought him to wider attention. But like, there's just like a little sort of touch of class that you can pick out from every game, I think, where he just does something and, you know, maybe doesn't even warrant a replay in the grand scheme of the game, but that just catches the eye in that way. Remember, he's only 22. Like, yeah. still super young for a for a player who is, I think there's no doubt now that he's Ulster starting 13. I think yeah, you'd be hard you'd be hard pressed to make the argument against it. It sounds very harsh on Luke Marshall because he's obviously not done anything to lose that jer- jersey apart from being injured. Like when he's played and been fit, he's been again among Ulster's most reliable performers, really, um, for the past couple of years. Um, but you'd be hard pushed, I think, to make any case that it wouldn't be beneficial moving forward to get him or to get Hume as many big minutes as possible. Yeah, absolutely. But then. You know, we have these conversations about when everybody's fit and we all know it's never going to happen anyway. So True, true. So if we, we think about the halfbacks for a little minute, well, Dave Shanahan in particular, our first start of the season for him eventually. So obviously with Albie Matthewson sort of expected to leave this summer, Dave's probably going to be fighting for game time with uh, the man who came off the bench, Nathan Duke. Um, how did we, how did we rate uh, their performances and, and that battle going into next season? I thought Shannon played well, and yeah. it like it will have been a frustrating season, obviously, because this is the least that he's played since Cooney's first season when Paul Marshall was still here. When it, so he was third choice then. I actually found it quite surprising that he hadn't made a start, and um, you know we're halfway through May, so it was it was an important game for him because, as you mentioned, like you know Nathan Doak is coming through. It will stand the Nathan Doak, I think, to play that number of minutes in that environment against that team will stand to him for next season. But I think, you know, if Shannon had come out and had a shocker, then it wouldn't have, uh, it wouldn't have put it well for, for him next season, because I think that was probably something that, you know, Dan McFarland was looking at, you know, if I'm losing my second choice nine in the summer, who's going to be my second choice nine next season? Shannon certainly would have been considered the clubhouse leader there, but, you know, a shocker in the RDS and you would have had more calls for Duke to get more and more time ahead of him. Yeah. I think the biggest compliment you can give him is that given the lack of game time he has had effectively for the last 15 months or so, he came out and still produced a performance like that. You know, I'd, it would have been very easy for him to come out and produce a shocker and everyone would easily have said, well, that's because he hasn't started a game in 15 months he hasn't had any significant game time even off the bench like his his bench appearances have all been limited to you know 10 minute cameos five minute cameos here and there and that's just because of John Cooney and for him to go out and put in a performance that made you think yeah this guy's a viable option to start at scrum half like that's just a massive compliment in itself and I think it really makes you understand the drive in the squad to get playing because if that's what Shannon can produce after that long without a start 
what happens if you start giving him a few spot starts here and there in the Pro 14 or the Pro 16 next season and see what he can do? Like I'm thinking ahead here. It's it's one good game. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say he's suddenly a shoe in for the Ireland squad or anything like that, but all you can do in one game is prove that you deserve more game time down the track. And I think that's exactly what he did at the RDS. Yeah, absolutely. So Ulster's performance in general, like this was an Ulster team that had 12 changes for in the starting 15. And they're up against the Leinster starting 15 to the 13 internationals. And it also led the game for so long. I know it's another defeat and uh, continues the run of them that obviously Ulster don't want. But performance-wise was this, Ulster will come away fairly encouraged, won't they? Yeah, well, it was their best performance in a good while. I think, albeit one where they one where they lost, I thought the way that they moved the ball and manipulated the ball around the gain line was probably something that we've been looking for them to do really since Marcel Cotillo wasn't playing because you've lost that big ball carrier, so you have to find a different way to win the battle of the gain line and the way that Ulster moved the ball did that for them. The balance to that being that it worked really, really well up to a point mm. and that point was probably in and around Leinster's 22 and then it was when you got there that you were like, that's again where for all the ingenuity of your attacking play, it would be really handy here to have Marcel Gutsia just, <laughs> you know, trucking up yeah. short range and trying to hammer his way across the line because what that performance was obviously missing was that clinical edge because mm. you know you're talking about 70 percent territory and possession really throughout that first half but you didn't come away with nearly enough points from i suppose not so, not so much the performance but the opportunity opportunities that you'd earned through enterprising play up to that point you know, obviously taking taking those chances is the most important part of the game. Yeah, well, yeah, they, that they, links they, in very well to our our next listener question from Lewis Stranahan. He asks, is Ulster's pack still not strong enough to compete with the best in Europe? Do we need another big name prop or or back row player? So if they're missing Marcel, I could say, what, what do you think about that pack now and how it's, how it's going to rate against the best? Well, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that because I think you saw on Friday night that Ulster were able to go toe-to-toe with Leinster in the pack. The Cain-Healy try aside, which was a really bizarre one for me because Ulster just seemed to completely fall apart defensively at their own line for that, and Healy somehow gets over the second phase. like That, that to me, was really strange and probably something that needs a lot of forensic analysis. But Ulster's pack was was level with Lancers for the entire game and even was probably slightly better. Like in the scrum, they had the edge. They, they just needed that one more ball carrying option that I think they probably do have. They just couldn't quite find that right combination because if, if you think about it, even if you have Marcel there, if you have Marcel running into, let's say, James Ryan and Ryan Baird every single time, well, Marcel's not going to make that much of an impact because those two are good defenders and they'll hit him back both times. But if you have Marcel Kutzea running at Ross Byrne every time, well, chances are he's going to make some good yardage. So it's all about how you utilize guys. And I just think whenever Ulster got into the 22, Leinster were able to tighten up. They were able to get their defense back in such a way that they were able to negate Ulster's uh, forwards. 
But up to the 22, they were great. Matty Ray, I thought, had one of his best carrying games of his career. Like, he was everywhere. He was constantly making line breaks. Um, I thought Nick Timoney was effective again. Sean Reedy came up with a few as well. So, look, I don't think it's a case of Ulster need more, need another face in the fours necessarily. They're going to get one in Leonie Nakarawa, who they're hoping will probably be a bit more of a ball-carrying option for them. But in the 22, I think they just need to be a bit smarter I just think they need that little bit more of an edge whenever they get into the 22 because it was almost like once they got into the 22, they got white line fever and they got afraid of how to get over the line. We saw it last week as well. We're now talking two weeks in the future, but against Munster, they spent eight minutes, solid eight solid minutes in the Munster 22 towards the end of the game and they couldn't score there either. So it's just something whenever they get into the 22, they can't quite get over the line because we saw on Friday, there's no issue with them getting up and into the 22. It's once they get into the 22, they just either take a really, really long time scoring or they don't know how to get over the line. And that, that for me, I don't think it's necessarily a personnel problem. I think it's just, I don't even know how else to put it, to be perfectly honest. But once they get into the 22, there's just something that, is not getting them over the line. And I don't necessarily think it's personnel. It might be mental. I think to be fair, like the question references the best packs in Europe and you wouldn't want to get too carried away with a Rainbow Cup game again in the RDS where you lost. You know, if you compare Ulster's pack to Toulouse, to La Rochelle, to Saracens, if they come back up to Leinster, to Exeter, to those teams that, you know, we reel off as being the top teams in Europe, are they lagging in that department? And the answer is still yes. You know, I don't think it's a knock on these guys to say that they're not the be- among the best packs in Europe because I don't think anyone would make that claim. So in answer to the question, I'd say yes, they are. Like, it's unfortunate the way Jack McGrath's injury has sort of robbed him of making any impact because, you know, you're talking about a lion, a British and Irish lion, which Ulster have one of and in the pack as it is. And you can see the difference that Ian Henderson makes to that pack. You can see the different level that Ian, Ian Henderson is at. You know, even even again in that game on Friday, I thought he was superb. He's been really, really very good nearly every time he's played. But nobody's going to turn down another player of that caliber. But I think that is the area where Ulster could particularly do with just another player of that ilk. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was Katsia, but like we're in danger of just, you know, we're in danger of belaboring the point that Marcel Katsia has left. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, just to, to preempt uh, future listener questions on this topic, is there any chance of any more players coming in ahead of next season? I don't think so. Like, they've no. pretty much done their business. Like, I don't know why this season in particular, maybe it's just because the central contracts took a little bit longer to uh, be confirmed and stuff. But, like, we are in May. Like, yeah. you know. The latest that Ulster would tend to do their business is really early spring. Now, I know they like confirmed the signing of Addison around Easter time. That was probably their latest in a few years. Like Madigan and Matthewson were both signed in February, as far as I can remember. You know, Billy uh, Burns is probably one of the latest ones as well. Was he not signed quite late? That's right. That was over the summer, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was only after the anti steel fell through. Yeah, there was, and obviously, like a fair amount of. Um, upheaval in the 10 jersey that left you looking in the market pretty late but yeah like I'd be very surprised I, I, st- I still say if you get to this stage of the season and you're still looking to sign someone 
you're not going to get the players you want. Yeah. Anybody that you would want or the caliber of the player that you want, if you're still looking in May, you're not going to find that yeah. player. Donal O'Reilly asks, "Is it had sounded very formal using Donal's second name. Haven't done that in a while. He's normally just goes by his first name, but there we are. Um, he asks, is there any truth, Adam, in the rumor that Rory Sutherland uh, may be coming to Ulster? I know we've already said that there's unlikely to be any incomings, but that's one that has been a little bit of talk that it could be happening. No, I, d- I don't think there's any truth in that. I mean, whenever you consider the profile of the player, he's a new British and Irish lion. He's a Scotland international. He'll be commanding quite a large wage in a position where Ulster already have Jack McGrath, who would be considered their number one, and Eric O'Sullivan, who is still one who's building for the future. So it's not a need for Ulster. I mean, if, if you look at this season, it's a need because McGrath's been out. But if you consider having McGrath and O'Sullivan for an entire season at loose head, I think you're pretty well stocked there with Callum Reid pushing through and Andy Wark providing a very reliable option. So I would say this is uh, not true. Okay, so we'll just stay on transfers then to rattle through another listener question. A little bit of a, a fantasy one that we've we've had on occasion in the past. Nathan Cassidy wants to know if you could pick any current player to join Ulster for next season, who would you pick? Rory Sutherland. <laughs> Nobody, don't need anyone. <laughs> no, no just, that's, uh, that's not true. <laughs> Marcel could say it. I was, I was tempted to say Marcel yeah. could say it. No. Um, a fully fit Marcel could say it. Yeah. I think like you, you'd probably be looking at Steph Tatar or Khaleesi, wouldn't you? Really, um, you're probably looking more at a six than an eight now. Like I, I think if you asked this question uh, and Nick Timoney hadn't come through, you would have been looking at a number eight to replace Marcel. But now the way that Timoney's been playing, you're probably looking at a six more than an eight. Yeah, it would be one of those two. I'd be I'd be very tempted just to say like Colby or Sammy Brando, just to like watch them every week, but like. Yeah. There would be a touch of the Charles Peter about it. Like it wouldn't be exactly what you uh, <laughs> what you needed to improve the team. So, yeah, I'll go step as well. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll throw that one back to the listeners. If anybody wants to let us know who you, who you would like to like to bring in, you can uh, tweet us and let us know who that would be. We'll stand with the pack as we look ahead to the Scarlets game on uh, on Saturday week. Stuart K. Martin asks, is there any chance we'll see Brad Roberts and Callum Reid get starts in those last two fixtures? Obviously, they came off the bench against Leinster. Or he asks, is having two novices, in inverted commas, in the front row too big an ask? So obviously, it's Scarlet's and then at home and then Edinburgh away uh, the Saturday after that. So any chance Roberts and, and Reid will get starts? I think you're gonna, you are definitely going to see an awful lot more an awful lot more rotation. I wouldn't be too wary about throwing them in for starts. I think, you know, you start, you look at the impact that Bradley Roberts had uh, coming off the bench on um, on Friday night, and it was another um, it was another action packed cameo. So, like, I think he's um, he's earned a start. And you know, when you're talking about Rainbow Cup dead rubbers, like, could the stakes be any lower? You know, like that's not <laughs> something you'll see on the the TV billing ahead of this game. <laughs> <laughs> the primary sports intro. Could the stakes be any lower? <laughs> uh, you know what? What is the worst that could happen? Really? Yeah. Well, I, I would. I would just like to counter that. Ulster have now lost four games in a row, and look, I'm not trying to build the Rainbow Cup up into anything. It's not. It is a nothing competition that we don't really care about. But at the same time, Ulster have lost four games in a row, 
they haven't lost five games in a row since 2010. And I haven't yet looked at how long it is since they've lost six games in a row. But even though the Rainbow Cup is the competition it is, if Ulster were to lose their last two games, how much would that affect them going into next season? It might not affect them at all, or it might be something that would linger over the summer. I think they'll want to get one win at least from their last two games just to just to avoid that kind of stretching on. And I think they will. I don't think they'll lose against Scarlets at home. I, I think they've got enough in the tank to win there. But I just think you've got to be a little bit careful in calling these games complete dead rubbers. Otherwise, you start to get this little bit of a lax mentality and then you start you start stringing losses together. And I think going into next season with six losses to finish last season, especially given that the Challenge Cup finished the way it did, I think it's just going to be a little bit of a of a mental thing. Just they need to get one win of, from their last two. And I think the Scarlets is probably the one that you want to win more. Well, there may be 500 fans uh, back at Ravenhill to watch that one. The uh, Northern Ireland executive have confirmed that that will be permitted, although uh, as things stand when we're recording, we're still waiting confirmation from Ulster on whether uh, or not that will be happening and uh, how exactly the distribution tickets would work for that. But for those fans that may or may not be in attendance, is there anything that you could point to that uh, you're looking forward to sort of seeing in this game or or watching or, you know, something that, that might give somebody a reason to want to go to go and watch this game? Like the people that want to go and watch the game will want to watch the game because even in a best case scenario, they haven't been to a game in five months. Yeah, I know. I know. But you know if, what I mean? Like that's, okay. that's the interest for people who are attending. Yeah. Yeah, but is there any sort of like blase about the fact that we still get to go? You know? yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. But is there any sort of facet of player, any of the younger players who might get a game that you would think, oh yeah, that's what I'm really, I'm really excited for in this one? Yeah, well, like I suppose the guys that you've already seen in this competition, like Callum Reed, we mentioned Bradley Roberts as well, there Nathan Doak. Like I think it's unfortunate um, with Marcus Ray, obviously having played well in the in the monster game to not be uh, to then pick up that injury again is another sort of blow to his own chances of putting a string of games together. But it is those guys that you want to see that you want to see more of because do you know what I mean? like we already know how good a player Stuart McCluskey is. We already know how good a player Jacob Stockdale is. We already know how good John Cooney, if he's fit is, you know, yeah. in this kind of competition in what will by then be late May, what you're looking to see or what you're looking to learn, I suppose, is something from those young guys. You want to see how they perform against, I suppose, post-16 opposition because they're the kind of games at present that they're going to be playing. And, you know, you're not, you don't need to know if they're ready to play Toulouse or La Rochelle next week. But in these types of games now, obviously, it's not going to be the same type of season next year. There's not going to be such long periods without the internationals there's not going to be games clashing with internationals for half the season but that's the standard I suppose that they those players still want to show that they can play at yeah. in the first instance yeah no fair enough so on young players now McDonald wants to know looking to the future are there any young players that stand out as potential future stars now he doesn't want you to say the likes of Aaron Saxon who uh, everybody already knows about but is there anybody that 
the general fan base may not know about yet that uh, that could have an impact over the next year or two? I feel like we answer this question every week. <laughs> um, well, obviously not. <laughs> back to your answers. <laughs> answer it better. The, the ones that we always mention, like Tom Stewart is a very talented prospect at hooker. But the thing is, there, there have been so few games that the answer hasn't changed from this time last year, effectively. You know, who, who's been playing in the meantime that has boosted their stock? Like, and anybody who has been able to boost their stock has been playing for Ulster. Yeah. So you, you know who the guys who have done their chances, done their chances favour are guys who have played for the senior team. Outside of that, you've had a small handful of A games, which, all right, give you a decent indication of who's tracking okay, but they've been few and far between, so you can't put too much stock into them. There have been no club games, no schools games to even see who's coming through the system beyond them. So, I mean, outside of Reed, Stuart, Doak, I know they asked us not to mention him, but Sexton's obviously one that you have to throw in there with his raw pace. And Moxham's probably the one outside of the academy that you'd mention. Yeah, the, the under the under 20s, which is now being confirmed to start a month today, is going to be worth watching. You know, it'll be interesting to see if um, Ruben Crothers makes an impact there. Um, I know we've talked about him before, having played for Wallace last year, whenever there was still schools for me to watch. Up the Wallace uh, boys. And then, you know, you've got, a, you, there's other guys that are presently training with the under 20s that aren't in the academy, but are in the, national talent squad so you know guys like Connor McKee George Saunderson Harry Sheridan who we talked about a bit on the back of that A game back in January I think it was just with there having been so little age grade rugby for the past 14-15 months the under 20s is probably going to be something a lot of people have their eye on and those are the guys along with the likes of Duke who we know about who are going to be involved in that so I think certainly from an Ulster perspective there's going to be a lot of people with their eye on that uh, Six Nations coming up um, next month. Big Jim asked, the last part of the jigsaw in getting victories seems to be mental. So how do Ulster go about sorting that? Uh, will they use a sports psychologist? Do Ulster have access to and use a, a sports psychologist regularly? And something that's been obviously spoken about in the past in terms of Irish rugby through, you know, Enda McNulty and um, coming in and working with the national team, it's been something that basically post that Leicester game, um, I've been wanting to ask Dan McFarland in a sort of pre-game press conference, but there hasn't been one since. So um, I will ask what they're doing and I'll report back. Yeah. Okay. Well, we shall uh, we shall wait with bated breath for the answer on that. Hopefully we'll get it uh, before the end of this season. We'll not have to wait until uh, September to get chatting to Dan before a game again. Um, so uh, a few more just to fairly quickly clear up B.R. Stout wants to know BBC Wales reportedly showing Pro 16 next season any word on BBC NI doing likewise? Haven't heard anything yet about BBC NI but we would imagine that if BBC Wales are getting some games then BBC Northern Ireland are also at least in discussions to get some some Ulster games so I'd be surprised if there weren't some games on free air next season Um Sounds like Sky Sports are going to get the main rights for the for the subscription games, but I would imagine that BBC and I will be having discussions behind the scenes to 
get some games back on free dare, which would be great. Yeah, another uh, another wait and see on on that one. Any word on Sparky? Stuart K. Martin asked, will we have to wait until next season to see him again, or will he be on the line against Scarlet? Well, I mean, the bubbles are split, as it were, so the pitch is a different bubble, so unless Sparky was in the bubble with the players. Mm. Like, he got a player to do it, like, you know, Trimble did it a few years ago, yeah. So. Did he? He did, I? Huh? Yeah. Wow. I've always thought Richard Mulligan would make a great Sparky. He has that enthusiasm. I think Richard would be great, would be great at it. I agree. Well, he's well, in neither the bubble nor the country, so I don't think he's. Uh... <laughs> yeah, he's not a genuine contender. That's true. So, well, for, uh, any, for any of the kids listening, we we know that Sparky lives at Kingspan Stadium. So, <laughs> <laughs> not sure what that means for the bubble. Though. We'll have to uh, we'll have to see come um, uh, next Saturday. So uh, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully they will get one of the players in. That would be great. So one final one and uh, the couple of brief minutes we have left Simon Elliott wanted to know uh, what our dream Ulster 15 for the first night out post-COVID would be now obviously that's a, probably a podcast in itself to go through 15 players but if you had a couple each couple of players that you think top lads wouldn't mind a wee pint I'm going to go with John Kearney because I really want to know more of his uh, sports psychological chat after reading his Bob Rotella books I'm into that like I think I think it'd be good chat John me and John, I don't even want anybody else, just me and John, so we're going to have a really good chat about all this stuff, you know, a real in-depth, deep, deep discussion, like. Heart to heart. Yeah. Yeah, which after a few points just gets more, more deep. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, I get, like, all the young players, whenever they're asked, like, I'll mention just how signed Ian Madigan is, so, um, mm. yeah, he, he'd be a contender. I feel I feel like delving back a bit, like Nick Williams or something like that definitely would have been the best crack. Like, he can Nick Williams see, would have yeah. been a cracker. No, you you can see how a night out with Nick Williams could turn into something, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I can't handle that sort of behaviour. They're like, I need a couple of shandies and home. <laughs> I, <laughs> a few we log our tops and then back in bed for eight o'clock. <laughs> I met I met Nick Williams after the Ulster Awards dinner at the Culloden one year, and I was walking back to my car. I had to go home because I had to work early in the morning. <laughs> And he was standing out in the car park, beer in one hand, cigar in the other. And he goes, Adam, and he gives me a big bear hug and then just walks <laughs> off and says absolutely nothing else. And that, that's the last time I saw Nick Williams because he left that summer and that, that was it. Way to leave. So, yeah, so way to leave a lasting memory. <laughs> I feel like Handy would be good because you get him to talk about Lions turn 2017. That's true. Or if it, or if you, if you got him in September, you could ask him about the Lions turn 2021. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Good, good stories from Hendo. Mm. Well, there we are. That's about us for uh, for this week and next week because, as we said earlier, we won't be back before the Scarlet's game. So um, that match is on Saturday, week 29th of May, 3 o'clock at Kingspan Stadium. And hopefully 500 of, of you fans, hopefully some listeners, will be there for that one. So we'll come back after that to, to look back at and ahead to the final game of the season. Who thought we'd ever get to, to say that? It's away at Edinburgh. So until then, from Jonathan Bradley, thank you very much for joining us, Jonathan. Cheers, thank you. And thank you, Adam McKendry. Don't worry, I'm sure the Pro 14 will have another competition to come after the Rainbow Cup. <laughs> Probably, who knows? Just the, the pot of gold that is summer never comes. But the overcast cup to take us into uh, to take us all the way to the Pro 16. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we have less than a minute left in our Zoom, so <clears throat> we need to end this now. So uh, see you later.